Well, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew for a little while now, and the theme of the Gospel of Matthew is the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus begins preaching. That's what John the Baptist begins preaching. Jesus is bringing the kingdom, but as we've seen, it's not the kind of kingdom we would expect, and it's not the kind of kingdom that his people expected. It's an upside-down kingdom. This king is going to be coronated by rejection and betrayal, even by his own people. But that was his plan all along, to come and give his life as a ransom for the very ones who deserve nothing but judgment. Turn over to Matthew chapter 26, if you're using one of our Bibles there in the chairs, it's page 781. Really the heart of the sermon will be the institution of the Lord's Supper. In many ways, that's the heart of the passage, but it's bracketed strikingly by betrayal. So let's walk through this passage, considering four points as we move along. Preparation for Passover, the betrayal of Judas, the institution of the Lord's Supper, and yet more betrayal. So first, preparation for Passover in verses 17 to 19. Look again with me at Matthew chapter 26. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. What's Passover? If you weren't here last week. Cooper mentioned its significance. He mentioned that one preacher said that for us, one way to think about its significance is if it were combining holidays like Juneteenth, July 4th, and New Year's all into one. Really important, the most important. It was a big deal. It was celebrating the exodus out of Egypt. It's the celebration of God freeing his people from slavery and forming them into a nation. And last week, Cooper took you all to Exodus 12. By the way, aren't you thankful that the Lord has provided such a good and godly team of men who can bring the word? So thankful. Thank you, Cooper, for your labor. He took you to Exodus 12. If you weren't here, let me just remind you of what happened there. Pharaoh would not let God's people go until that tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn of all of Egypt. Keep your finger, Matthew 26, but it'd be worth you flipping with me back to Exodus. We'll be there a little bit this morning. So keep them both open, Exodus and Matthew. Look at Exodus chapter 11. Genesis, then Exodus, early on in your Bible. Go to Exodus 11, 4 to 6. So Moses said, thus says the Lord... About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. The death of the firstborn. But God would spare his people through a sacrificial lamb. He told each Israelite home to sacrifice an unblemished lamb and put the blood on each doorpost in the lintel. And there's this emphasis on the blood of the lamb here in this 
institution of the Passover. Look over at Exodus chapter 12, verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Look at chapter 12, verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Look down at verse 22 of chapter 12. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. God would see the blood applied and he would pass over their home. They would escape judgment through the shed blood of the unblemished lamb. Hugely important. So Passover became one of the main celebrations of Israel as it celebrated the formation of them into a people. The Exodus was the grandest of all God's mighty acts in the Old Testament. So all Jewish males were expected to come to the temple during Passover. Jerusalem, normally around 30,000 people, swelled to 180,000 during Passover. And this commemorative meal was the high point of Passover. And this Passover meal was marked by explanation from the Father. Look there at Exodus chapter 12, verse 26. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say to them, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Right from the beginning, God's will was that fathers would teach children about the mighty acts of God around the dinner table. And normally the father would expound the story of the Exodus and the formation of the people of Israel. But what we're going to see is that Jesus, this fatherly figure at the table this time, is going to break script to talk about himself. And Jesus has all this planned out. He says, go into the city. Tell my dude I'm ready. I got a guy. Just like he did earlier. Remember, this is all one week. Go back to Matthew chapter 21 as he's entering the city. Matthew 21 verse 1, the beginning of this section, the triumphal entry. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he'll send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, he quotes from Zechariah, Jesus has all this planned out. He had a guy ready with the colt. Now he's got a guy ready to prep. He's got his face set like flint towards Jerusalem. It may not appear this way in this trial, but Jesus Christ is in charge. He knows exactly what he's doing. Flip back just a couple pages back to chapter 16, verse 21. He told them the plan. From that time, 
Chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He has a plan. He's executing his plan. He has a mission to accomplish. He has a people to purchase. And Jesus says, my time is at hand. It's time. And all this was planned not just in Jesus' own mind, all this was planned before God even created the world. He's the lamb slain from before the foundations of the world. In Acts chapter 2, we read this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is no accident of history. Two chapters later, they say the same thing in Acts chapter 4, verse 27. For truly, in this city that were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus knows that his time has come. Second, let's consider the betrayal of Judas. The betrayal of Judas, verse 20, Matthew 26. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? And he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. So Jesus here, he tells his twelve that one of them will betray him. And they become sorrowful and ask, Is it them? And Jesus indirectly points to Judas and then tells him directly. And you know, we're really used to this story. But we need to remind ourselves of how scandalous it is. That the Lord Jesus Christ would be betrayed by one of his own 12 disciples. Judas falls away. So friends, if one of the disciples of Jesus can fall away, we need to be on guard. As one of the Puritans said, Judas heard all Christ's sermons. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Here's my heart, heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And so we got to focus on finishing well. You know, when we had Sharon James coming here a couple weeks ago, she came to our Sunday night prayer service. Uh, it was really encouraging. And uh, it was not, I think she was just talking, but just one of the ways she talked about giving thanks to God was, the Lord has kept me. That's straight out of Jude. We ought to talk that way more. And we ought to pray that way. Lord, keep us. Keep us. We've got to f- focus on finishing well. We can't look back in the past at some, some event that happened or some decision we may have made. We've got to focus on the present. Are we faithfully following Jesus today? Like Judas, we could enjoy great religious privilege, make a great profession, but if our hearts are not kept by the Spirit of God, we're no better. And we've got to hear this in Abilene, Texas, where there's so much religion. So much shallowness, so much superficiality, lots of talk about Jesus, lots of decisions made 
for Jesus with not a lot of actually following Jesus in his word. And so learn a lesson from Judas. And notice just how hopeless the condition of the lost is. The, the language Jesus used there in verse 24. The son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Friends, it'd be better to never have lived at all than to live and then to die without Jesus Christ. Jesus appeals to final judgment again and again and again. Talks about it all the time. This is why this is all so serious. This is why we take the word so serious. Because hell is real. Eternity is at stake. There will be a final judgment and the wrath of God is coming for all who don't follow Jesus till the end. Better to never have been born than to face the wrath of God. And we have the third movement in the passage, the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26, verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You know, sadly, these words that should produce unity have caused a lot of division in the church, mostly due to faulty exegesis, most famously probably uh, coming out of the Protestant Reformation as the Protestants are going back to Scripture after darkness lied and understanding the gospel of free grace, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, based upon the authority of the Scripture alone. But Zwingli and Luther, most famously, at the Colloquy of Marburg in 1529, they couldn't come together on what exactly this meant. They couldn't come together and agree about the presence of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. I think we got a picture. We got a picture here. And what you have is a debate happening. And Luther had written in classic Luther style. He had written in, in Latin, this is my body. Actually, it was Greek. This is my body. And he had it ready. And as they're debating, he just moves the tablecloth. So he's got it there written. And he just underlines is, is, this is my body. And they could not come together. They actually left making no headway. It was really sad. You know, y'all know I love Luther. Luther's my boy. It pains me to say, though, on this issue, he still had a little too much Rome sloshing around in his system. There's a lot of debate surrounding this meal. Four main views historically of communion. Let me just remind you of them. First, we have the view that's called transubstantiation. This is the Roman Catholic view. They say that the substance of the bread and wine actually literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus. This is how they write it at the Council of Trent in the 16th century. They say, after the consecration of the bread and wine, our Lord Jesus Christ is truly, really, and substantially contained in the venerable sacraments of the Holy Eucharist under the appearance of those physical things. You may have known this is where the phrase hocus pocus comes from. The Latin for this is my body is hoc est corpus meus. And this undergirds their whole view of the mass. It's a literal reenactment of Christ's sacrifice. And so for that theology, it's not finished. 
has to happen every week, which is why it's so important for our Catholic friends. I think there's a lot of problems with that view. Number two, you have the Lutheran view called consubstantiation. I think Luther basically made this view up, had a lot of things right, got a lot wrong as well. He said that the substance of the bread and wine is not changed, but that the unchanged substance of the bread is united with the substance of the body of Christ. Don't know exactly what he means, but he would say that the presence of Jesus' body is really present in, with, and under the elements. And then third, we have the memorialist view. This was the view of Zwingli. And historically, most Baptists have held this view. It states that communion is merely a remembrance of the death of Christ. But I always want to push back. Anytime we're talking about the death of Christ, the word merely has no place. The fourth view is the spiritual presence view, most, most notably known and held by Calvin, but also many Reformed Christians, some Methodists, some Episcopalians, in a little bit of a different way. Calvin said that the bread and wine are signs and guarantees of a present reality. I myself hold basically a combination of three and four, a modified view of four. Many historically particular Baptists have held this view that the Spirit binds believers together to Him through faith in communion. So we do spiritually feed on Christ by faith. We are spiritually nourished at the table, not due to the bread and juice, but due to the gospel symbolized by these elements. Here's how 1 Corinthians 10, 16 puts it. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Baptists historically have held this view. Let me, this is kind of long, but I think it's important just to read some Historic confessions on occasion. This one isn't ours, but I love what this second London Baptist confession of the 17th century says. It's long, but I think we have the text for you. As our Baptist forebears describe it, the supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night wherein he was betrayed to be observed in his churches unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance and showing to all the world the sacrifice of himself and his death, confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishments and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe to him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. It goes on to say in another paragraph, that doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation by consecration of a priest or by any other way, is repugnant, not to scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason. It overthrows the nature of the ordinance and has been and is the cause of manifold superstitions, yea, of gross idolatries. Goes on to say, worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. The body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. So we're remembering, and in the remembering, our faith is built up. Jesus says, he takes the bread and he says, take, eat, this is my body. And Jesus means this represents my body. This represents my blood. Just as when Jesus says, I am the gate, or I am the vine. These words were never meant to be taken in a woodenly, literal sense. 
The bread can't literally be the body of Jesus because Jesus himself is holding it. Plus, the disciples were Jewish. It would have been sinful. Deuteronomy 12, only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life. But look at verse 28. What, is, what does it mean? For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Here we have the theological reasoning behind the meal and his pending death. Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant. He ties together the concept of his death and the concept of covenant. And this is an illusion, really a quotation from Exodus chapter 24. You still got a finger back there? This is the giving of the old covenant. The heart of the old covenant is what? It's the Decalogue, the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. You can find those in Exodus chapter 20. The giving of the Ten Commandments. And then you have the rules or the laws in Exodus 21 and 22 and 23. And all together, this is the book of the covenant. Here we have the giving of the old covenant as the people of Israel are formed into a nation. And Jesus is quoting from here this covenant being confirmed in Exodus chapter 24. Look with me in 24 verse 3. After the giving of the old covenant, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, Exodus chapter 20, the words, and all the rules, Exodus 21, 22, and 23. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant, Exodus 20 to 23. And he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took, here it is, the blood and threw it on the people. And behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So why is Jesus quoting Exodus 24, 8 here? He's saying he's bringing about a new covenant. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 about the Lord's Supper. Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Same in Luke 22. Not just an old covenant, but a new covenant, which draws us to Jeremiah 31. Flip over there if you want to with me. Isaiah, Jeremiah, big books there sort of in the middle of your Bible. Jeremiah 31, the famous new covenant promise. Jeremiah 31, 31. Thirty-one, thirty-one. behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is going to be a new and better covenant. Hebrews tells us that. Why? Because they broke this one. We know the history of Exodus, right? They broke it really quickly while Moses was still on the mount. So they needed something new. They still needed new hearts. And so he says, I'm going to make a new covenant. It's going to be different. This new one's going to be different. And that I'm going to keep it 
That's why you'll notice, count the I wills, I wills, I wills. We've already seen a couple. Look at verse 32, verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their heart and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This was the problem with old covenant Israel is they didn't have new hearts. And so the law would come to him. And what does the law do when it bounces off of hard hearts? Disobedience. They needed new hearts. They needed transformed hearts. And he would have a relationship of closeness here. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 34, all of them will be believers. Unlike an old covenant Israel, now all will be believers. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. Why? They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What was the problem with Old Covenant Israel? They had hard hearts, and they didn't have full and final forgiveness. They had to go every year to sacrifice an animal. And here, the Lord's saying, this will be the definitive end of animal sacrifice. No action will need to be taken. By his death, Jesus is bringing the Old Covenant to an end. The cross is the theological end of the Old Covenant with its temple. The veil is torn. And then, as we saw in Matthew chapter 24, the judgment on AD, in AD 70, as the temple is destroyed, will be the historical end of the Old Covenant. Not one stone left upon another. Jesus is bringing about a new and better covenant. Traditionally, if the Jewish father would normally speak of the formation of the people of God at the Passover, Jesus speaks about the formation of a new covenant people. And his shed blood will inaugurate the new covenant. Jesus is a sort of new Moses who inaugurates a new covenant. And did you notice what's missing here at this meal? There's no Passover lamb. Why? He is the Passover lamb. His blood covers us. And through it, the judgment of God will pass over us. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He brings a new and greater exodus, freeing us not from Egypt, not from Rome, but from Satan, sin, death, and hell. And Jesus says his blood will be poured out for the many. Again, if we know our Bibles, we know exactly what Jesus is alluding to as he speaks of shed blood and substitution for the many. The prophet Isaiah, turn there with me, Isaiah 53 written 700 years before Christ came, but it sounds like it was written beneath the cross of Calvary. The suffering servants who would bear the sins of many. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off. Out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he'd done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressions. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus is the suffering servant who bore the sins of many to bring the kingdom of God by his substitutionary death on the cross. Back in Matthew, Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant that is poured out for many. For what? Why? For the forgiveness of sins. Friends, we've got a lot of needs in this room. We've got a lot of needs every day. Some small, some large. But your greatest need, our greatest need is the forgiveness of our sins. There is no greater need. Our sin has separated us from a holy God. On our own, we are doomed to face the wrath of God. He's holy. He doesn't grade on a curve. And when his holiness meets our sin, wrath is the righteous response. And so we are in need. We need atonement. We need a mediator. We need forgiveness. We need a savior. We need a ransom. And this meal is a celebration that God has provided just that through the shed blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. This is why he came. This is the heart of it all. This is why we're Christians. He came to redeem sinners. That's what this gospel, Matthew, has been around, been about the whole time. Let me read from the very first chapter, Matthew 1, 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what this meal celebrates. And that's why it is a celebration. Because it commemorates the death of Jesus by which our greatest problem is taken care of. And so we're regularly reminded, we regularly partake of what Andrew Fuller called the sacred supper. That we might taste afresh the love of Christ. Celebrating that we're forgiven through faith in Jesus. Spared by the blood of the lamb. Informed. By the blood of the lamb. Jesus' death is not just for individuals. Jesus' death produces a new covenant community. And communion is a community forming meal. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. The many 
become one in this celebration. This is why historically Baptists in particular have connected local church membership and communion. Baptism is the front door into the church and communion is the family meal of the local church. Here's how one Baptist puts it. The Lord's Supper doesn't just represent our unity. It ratifies and seals it because it enacts our fellowship with one another. The Lord's Supper makes many one. This is why church membership is first and foremost inclusion at the table and church discipline is first and foremost exclusion from the table. This is why we and churches historically have fenced the table. You ever wonder what that means? Hopefully, if you remember, you understand what it means. But we fence the table here in a moment when we take communion. We'll say like we say every time, if you are a baptized member in this church or a member in good standing of another church that preaches the same gospel, you're welcome to partake. You know what we could say? The flip side of that is if you're not under church discipline, you're welcome. Because church discipline is an act where the congregation can no longer affirm the profession of a member. And so the church at some point has to excommunicate. This is all in Matthew 18 from Jesus, Paul, 1 Corinthians 5, if you're new here. What is excommunication? It is excommunion. When someone is disciplined, it doesn't mean they can't come back here. It just means they're not welcome to the table unless they repent. So back in the day, some churches would even have interviews before Communion Sunday. And it would be granted either certificates or tokens to be able to participate. That was their way. It goes a little far, I think. But their way of making sure no one took the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner that 1 Corinthians 11 talks about. And 1 Corinthians 11 warns that if you take it in an unworthy manner, you're liable to die. It's serious. It makes the many one. And Jesus tells his disciples, I won't eat with you again. He will not eat with them again until he drinks it anew in his father's kingdom. Their fellowship is soon to be broken, but not definitively. It will be restored. And fourth, we have more betrayal. Look at verse 30. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Jesus warns his disciples, they're going to fall away. They're going to stumble. And this falling away of the disciples is actually in fulfillment of Scripture, Zechariah 13. It's about the restoration of Israel and her being cleansed from idolatry. And it says the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter, but this will actually be a means by which he'll renew his people through the scattering. Jesus is the good shepherd who restores his people. Peter says, I'm good. It's not going to happen to me. He's confident he won't fall away. He's always confident. Usually misplaced confident in the self. His spirit is willing. I appreciate that, but his flesh often turns to be weak. And he says, though all these others fall away, I'm with you. Ride or die, I'm here. I'll never fall away. And as Solomon says, pride comes before the fall. Jesus helps him out a little bit. On the contrary, Peter, here in just a few hours, 
You're not only going to deny me, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And they all counter, no, no, we will not fall away. We will even die with you. Well, time will tell. Friends, in the heat of the moment, when the going gets tough, will you turn out to be a Judas? Will you turn out to be a Peter? That's usually how it goes when you talk with people, and we all know people that at some point made a good start with Jesus and fell away. You can usually start asking questions. More often than not, some trial happened. And when trials come, we have two options. We can lean in towards the Lord or we can run away. There may come a time when you are tested in a significant way, like Peter. More likely, most of you will stay in America. You'll have smaller tests, but you will have tests. Usually nowadays, in our day, it's going to revolve around our views of gender and sexuality and humanity. And so let me just ask, when there could be bad consequences, will you stand with Jesus and stand over against the world, come what may? Or will you stumble? That's what the word is used here. The word for falling away. It's the same word Jesus used it before. Flip back a few chapters with me in Matthew 13, verse 20. Parable of the soils. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Time will tell. Verse 21, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he stumbles. Same word. He falls away. He has a good start, and then it becomes hard to be a Christian. And he stumbles. Same thing we saw in the Olivet Discourse. Look over at Matthew chapter 24. Same word for stumble. 24 verse 9. Jesus says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will stumble. They'll fall away because of tribulation and because of persecution. Some of you are already experiencing this testing. Most of us will soon enough. And so, friends, we just have to resolve now to side with the Lord. We just have to resolve now to be called haters, even though we're trying to be lovers, to be called bigots for things that the Bible is clear about and the church historically has believed for thousands of years, for what the Bible teaches about mankind or gender, sexuality or exclusivity or hell or whatever it may be. Jesus warned us, he says, that if you're ashamed of me and my words, I'll be ashamed of you when I come. Let's not be ashamed, church. Now, how can we avoid this? How can we avoid falling away like Judas? What was the difference between Judas and Peter? Both fell away. One repented and the other didn't. See, that's it. That's the key. That's the issue. The difference between faithful followers and the unfaithful is not whether or not we sin. We all sin. The difference is we repent of our sin. The difference is we hate our sin. The difference is we take God's side over against our sin. That's the difference. We repent. 
We get back on the narrow path. We get knocked off. We get back on. We keep repenting until the day we die. Reminds me of Thomas Cranmer. Y'all know Thomas Cranmer? Wrote the book of Common Prayer. He's an Anglican. This is, you know, this is hot at the time of the Protestant Reformation. And he was a promoter of Protestant doctrine of faith alone and Christ alone and Scripture alone. And then Mary the first, Bloody Mary, took the throne and she pretty much stopped it all. She was brutal. Many of you know the history. She locked many up and she made Thomas Cranmer actually watch two of his friends get burned. We don't have time, but your, your homework for the afternoon is to go read about the martyrdom of, of Riddler and Lattimore. Lattimore and Ridley, sorry, Ridley. Uh, Lattimore and Ridley. Cranmer had to watch them. So he had just seen his friends be burned. And Rome asked him to recant of his teaching, recant of teaching against the Roman Catholic Church. And he did. He did. He signed a recantation and sided with the Roman Catholic Church in 1556. He fell away from the truth of God's word for a moment. And then he recanted his recantation. <laughs> and he went public. And he publicly preached against false doctrine and preached against papal authority and preached against transubstantiation. And he was burned at the stake for it. And so as the fires lit up, Cranmer puts his hand in the fire first, the very hand that signed the recantation. May it go first. And as he died, Cranmer echoed Stephen and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I see the heavens open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And friends, you better believe the Lord Jesus received him. Why? Because there's grace. There's grace for the Peters. There's grace for the Cranmers. There's grace for us. Because Jesus knows the frailty of his disciples. Even these right here in his passage, did he not just predict that they would all fall away? And here in the next chapter, they are all going to fall away. And yet, he invites them to his table. He knows what's about to happen. And yet, they're invited because he knows our frailty. He knows our weak constitution. He knows our sin, and yet he invites us. In fact, the invitation is only for weak people. The strong aren't invited to this table. The only qualification here is to realize you don't qualify. Brothers, would you come? and begin to distribute the elements we get to celebrate this morning.